0: Two sensations this week, the outstanding one being Crushing by Browns and the commencement of Crushing by Croman. The last claim should be named the Pride of Hill End. 15 tonnes were commenced yesterday, the result being pieces of gold the size of apple dumplings. The machine had to be stopped every half hour to relieve the wells which had become choked with gold. Rumours were afloat concerning the richness of the stone. The facts are The whole result should not be far short of 8,000 ounces. The Sydney Mail, July 27th, 1872.
1: Hello and welcome to Hindsight. I'm Gretchen Miller.
0: I think
2: old-timer Vin Souter really summed it up nicely. He can trace his family's roots back to uh, the first European settlers in in the district back in the 1820s. He said that Hill End had always been on the edge of everything. Now, he was thinking in terms of, of the history and the culture of the place as much as the geography, but I think in terms of geography, it really sums it up pretty well, because Hill End is perched up about eight, 900 metres above sea level right up in the central New South Wales tablelands. It's nestled in a shallow upland valley, which can be slightly deceptive to the tourist when you're there in the town. It seems quite a sort of gentle uh, confined place but you walk just out of the town to the south and the, dra- the ground just drops away from your feet. If you walk out towards uh, Hawkins Hill where the, where, the, where the gold rush was most concentrated or the adjoining spur um, Bofo Merlin lookout There's a sheer drop right down an enormous escarpment to the Turon River towards its junction with with the Macquarie River. So it's quite an amazing, amazingly remote, an, an edgy
3: type place. There's a feel of edginess about it. I think the geography of the district set the character of the place. It's complete isolation. Cold nights, severe winters, much grog being drunk because of conditions. Community events, racing, horse racing, I mean, cricket matches, not much else, actually. No, I'm a believer, to a certain extent, in determinism. That uh, it's, it's the area that, that moulded the people rather than the people moulding themselves.
1: Imagine a long and arduous trek from Sydney, it is 1851 and it could take you up to a month to drag your bullock cart westward over the Blue Mountains to the booming pastoral and gold town, Bathurst. Here you might rest a while and collect some supplies, but eager to get on, you don't stop long, and you willingly suffer several more days on the bridle track along the wilds of the Turon River, until, utterly exhausted, you finally reach the busy township of Hill End. El Dorado and the mines of Hawkins Hill. This is a story not only of gold, but of the lives behind the gold, of a community which has endured over 150 years in between rushes that really totaled just a couple of decades. The current population is just under 200, but once there were thousands living and mining here.
2: Gold mining at Hill End consisted of Three gold mining booms. The first boom is associated with alluvial gold mining and runs approximately from the early 1850s up to the 1870s. The second gold mining m- boom is a reef mining boom, which peaks in the early 1870s. And the third gold mining boom is a much more muted version of the first two, beginning in the early 20th century around 1908, 1910, and petering out in the middle of the 1920s, and is uh, a reef mining boom. Gold was, was discovered north of Bathurst uh, in 1851 in a place that's become known as Ophir. From there, miners scattered out, scouring the creek beds, the gullies, working their way up the Macquarie River, working their way along the Turon to Safala. So you had you had that process going on from 1851, and simultaneously, to the north of present day Hill End, there were a series of um, isolated discoveries of impressive gold nuggets. There was Kerr's hundred weight, as it became known, discovered on the uh, pastoral run of Dr. Kerr. There was another discovery on Louisa Creek in present day Hargraves. So that gradually the entire region was explored by fossicas.
1: Alan Main, author of a new book, Hill End, an Historic Australian Goldfields Landscape. Brian Hodge is a local historian and fourth generation Hillendite. He describes what was significant about that first alluvial gold rush.
3: It created a new social class to begin with. For the first time, people were able to go outside the master-servant mentality and become independent miners, go to work when they wanted to go to work, have their own land, which was leased until 1861, but they still had it. They had the chance to make money. They loved their independence. Probably the major importance of rich alluvial mining, was that it attracted, you know, in the first decade, over half a million free migrants, which put to rest the convict society and, and its uh, intolerance and cruelty and so forth. We're What we're really talking about are the results of gold. Reef mining
2: begins during the first alluvial gold boom in the 1850s and 1860s. As miners sought to identify the sources of the nuggets that were found lying on the surface. And they traced the nuggets to the exposed quartz seams and began experimenting with ways of extracting the gold, initially by dollying, which was essentially having a a hollow metal tube that you'd put rocks in and then plunge a, a metal rod Uh, Down in order to crush the rock into powder. Reef mining gradually developed during the 1850s and 1860s as partnerships of
3: miners sought to work those reefs. A major influence was investment capital. Spectacular finds in 1869, the Northumberland Mine, and in June 1871 in Hulton and Star of Hope. They were the startling finds that electrified Sydney business world and brought uh, scores of companies followed by workers into Hill End. In the Northumberland in July, 30 tonnes of ore yielded a 1,000 ounces of gold, which was uh, unprecedented in in the Hill End gold fields. A young self-educated miner, Mark Hammond, was responsible for both fines. He charted the course in each mine and found the gold. And um, Mark retired, wealthy to Sydney, invested in property successfully, became Mayor of Ashfield, Member of Parliament.
1: It seems to me like a lot of the um, people who have been involved in, in Hill End were very civic-minded.
3: Yes, uh, I think you're correct in suggesting that. Some also uh, grabbed the loot and took off. James Brown, Northumberland, Jimmy owned the Northumberland and in 1872 he left sail from Australia with 50,000 pound and bought a North Sea fishing fleet. Anyway, the boom collapsed uh, in 1873 when shareholders got frightened. There was corruption, there was mismanagement, deception. Uh, There's another reason too. These shareholders expected to get rich overnight, whereas uh, the successful companies which were getting good gold had first started in 1866. Now, these were the days of blasting and the Hawkins Hill Rock was so tough that an average sinking was one foot per day. (laughs) So there are the two reasons... And uh, the people didn't have too much choice. Many families and their miners left. There were nearly 7,000 or 7,000 people thereabouts in End and its close environs in 1872. 1881, the census shows that there were roughly 1,200. 1891, the census shows that there were roughly 800.
1: Much has been said about Hill End, stories that are inscribed in histories both official and unofficial, transcribed from ripping yarns told by old timers down at the pub and embellished with snippets from the National Archives. It's said that during its reef mining boom that it was the largest inland town in Australia, that the wealth produced from its gold mines kick-started the Sydney Stock Exchange, that it held a mile of shops with no fewer than 52 hotels, There were tens of thousands of people living there, dreaming of the nugget that would make their fortune. But the truth is more elusive, especially when dealing with a transient population with imaginations fevered by gold. At most, and fleetingly, the town's resident population hit around 1500. Bathurst, Mudgee and indeed Parramatta were certainly ahead of it in importance, permanence and in size. In fact, the Sydney Stock Exchange had its origins in Queensland's Peak Downs copper mine, though End did help boost the investment in mining that Peak Downs had started. So why the tall stories? And why does the End legend still loom so large? Sheena Goodwin, fifth-generation Endite, whose father, Bruce, wrote the book Gold and People.
4: I think I've learned in giving guided tours in End or just talking to people and from the history that my father gave, that in many ways you can't trust history. History is how the moment is perceived by many different people and there's a colouring of memory. And tiny little seeds of a story grow into a great massive sort of myth and a legend. A lot of eccentric people have lived in End, so there's a lot of bizarre stories, but it's made me really think twice about believing a lot of history.
2: The myths that surround the history of Hill End are not unique to Hill End. It seems to me that one can trace a similar pattern of exaggeration and exaggeration laid upon exaggeration, fueling further exaggeration in gold mining communities across Australia. Um, Malden, for example, uh, with its, its somewhat uh, spurious claim to be the first notable town in Australia, Castlemaine claimed to be the hub of the world's largest, greatest, shallow alluvial goldfield. OK, now let's pause for a moment and consider why why this happens. Mm. It seems to me that it, there's a tendency in order to assert the historical and heritage significance of a place, there is a belief that one has to establish primacy. Primacy either in terms of the first this or the largest that, the largest nugget, the biggest mine... The bitterest strike, uh, the greatest number of pubs, um, the list goes on. It's a claim for historical significance which is based upon an assertion of uniqueness. But ultimately, the undoubted historical and heritage significance of Hill End or other gold mining communities in Australia is not their uniqueness, but rather, I think, their their representative qualities, the way in which they fit into a broader pattern of mining activity and community development. What becomes, for me, more interesting is why do those claims to uniqueness and special status uh, survive the test of time? Is it because of nostalgia and the poor man's diggings community clinging to a sense of greatness in the past? Uh, was it a construction of, sort of later historical and heritage, cultural heritage overlays as heritage managers and local and external historians sought to construct a claim for uniqueness, for significance for Hill End? A number of potent strands come together at Hill End, strands that enable one to puzzle through to a past time, a remote time, a vanished place. On the one hand, you've got an extensive relic landscape in terms of the scatter of mining places and miners' cottage sites. You've got, on another hand, an oral tradition which has been passed on through the generations at Hill End because of that enduring poor man's diggings uh, that has survived long beyond the gold rushes and stories handed on down through the generations. But the other thing that you have at Hill End is a quite remarkable set of photographs taken at the height of the boom in the early 1870s. Hundreds of photographs taken by Beaufoy Merlin and his colleague Charles Bayliss photographs of the town at the peak of the boom that were commissioned by Bernard Holteman, one of the most uh, successful of the, of, the, of the miners at the peak of the boom.
1: Photographs, found at the back of an old Sydney house in the 1950s. They documented in a unique way an extraordinary time and place. So who was Beaufoy Merlin? Gavin Wilson, arts consultant, curator and manager of the Artists in Residency program at Hill End.
5: Well, he was a pioneer photographer using the old wet plate technique and uh, Merlin um, had the Australian and American Photographic Company, the ANA as it was known, and he was commissioned by Holtman to document the township of Hill End and Golgong during the, the Gold Rush era in the, the 1870s. And he was a master of his art and the the clarity and the I think that the general composition really did impart something again of the myth of the place. I was very keen to see what evidence there was of this cosmopolitan lifestyle that uh, legend uh, has it took place at End, and it, it was a fact. Not only were there oyster mittens and broken bottles of uh, Dom Perignon lying around some of the um, ruins that were once cafes and bars, there is evidence in the photographs of a boisterous township with a multicultural affair, really, and from all accounts a, a a pretty peaceful place, really.
1: In fact, Merlin was probably one of the first to engage in official fictionalisation at Hill End when he took the photographs of what is said to be the largest specimen of gold ever found, 290-odd kilos of golden quartz known as the Halterman Nugget.
5: It did hold the record, and still does, for the largest specimen of gold ever wrenched from the earth. It was Louis Bayers and uh, Bernard Otto Halterman who were uh, responsible for unearthing it. Uh, in fact, there was a big kerfuffle over the uh, <laughs> over the actual photography involved. Halterman uh, was only about five foot, you know, zero. And uh, they got him to stand with a... Uh, I think it was a hat stand. And then they'd superimpose the nugget over the hat stand <laughs> to create the image that was finally, you know, the historic piece.
1: Why did they do that?
5: What happened was they crushed the nugget. before They photographed it, but they didn't get any of the major players standing around it. Haldeman wanted to... Uh, he wanted to buy out the shareholders and take the nugget to Europe and display it in the hope that... Uh, he'd reap a great fortune. But of course the shareholders wouldn't get their money until he got back from his, his trip. And they decided in the end that they'd rather get the money in the hand. And, uh, and it was uh, quickly crushed.
3: Bernard Otto Holderman was born in Hamburg and migrated to Australia as a young man on his own admission to, to avoid conscription. He worked hard, as they all did. After his success with the Star of Hope mine, he showed good business sense in disposing these shares at appropriate time and attempting to make money with the uh, pills. And...
1: Tell me about the halderman's pills.
3: I don't know much about them at all, except they were cure-alls. <laughs> and poor old halderman had plenty to cure when he died at the age of 47 mainly liver complaints. The Hill End miners and investors did not like him at all. I don't think it had anything to do with his being German, but it had a great deal to do with Haldeman in September 1871 writing a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald. Now remember that it was in June 1871 that... Mark Hammond found this startling amount of gold and Sydney investors were forming companies everywhere. But uh, Alderman wrote in this letter warning Sydney investors of the dangers of investing in Hill End. Now, you can imagine, you can imagine the fury of the people who'd been underground and investors in the mines since 1860. You can imagine the feeling of the miners. So he, he was... Uh, very much dislike. They called it treachery. Hullam would call it honesty.
1: Do you, do you think that he was um, harshly judged then?
3: To a certain extent, yes. So uh, although
1: people describe him as arrogant and also, was, you know, he was a bit of a showman, wasn't he? He with was those?
3: egotistical. He was a showman. He was also very generous. He gave 50 pound, for example, to the building of Hill End Hospital. He was very liberal in his politics, small L liberal in his politics, uh, supporting public education, supporting mining legislation to protect the miners, supporting free selection, and so on. The
1: quiet partner in the business duo was Louis Byers, whose memory lives on in the grand avenue of imported trees that lead the visitor into Hill
3: End. There seemed to be a simplicity, an honesty and a generosity about Byers that made him so well-liked that when he died in Western Australia, a pauper, flags in the village were flown at half-mast. He continued to live in Hill End, in contrast to most who became wealthy. He gave much money away, he drank much money away, he entered Parliament but was not particularly successful. As as I said, he was a fairly simple, generous person and always had hope going into new ground. Probably the photographs from
2: the Holterman collection that have received the greatest amount of public attention have been photographs that focus on the township hubs. I mean the big the big hotels like Patrick Coyle's Clubhouse Hotel where the stagecoaches terminated or some of the largest mining companies like Thomas Chappell's Stamper battery which was regarded as the largest and the most uh, impressive the Stamper batteries, or the mines on Hawkins Hill with views of Hawkins Hill uh, like a giant anthill uh, with the Turon River escarpment in the background. But the real gems in the Halterman collection are the photographs which detail everyday life.
0: I must say, I think it is too much the fashion in New South Wales to deprecate mining communities and to compare them unfavourably in consequence of their roving, unsettled and speculative character with those who are engaged in pastoral and agricultural pursuits. I think it is unjust. There can be no doubt, whatever, that without the aid of the mining community, the colony would never have advanced with the unexampled rapidity which it has done in commerce, in industry and in wealth. Cities have been raised in the primeval forest and the homes of civilization have been reared in places where a few years since there was only the wigwam of the savage. Allow me to propose. Success to Hill End and the mining interests of the district. Sir Hercules Robinson, Governor of New South Wales, March 1872.
2: They're the photographs which which capture um, township events, such as Sir Hercules Robinson. The New South Wales governor visited Hill End in March 1873. There's a wonderful photograph of the townsfolk standing around an ornamental arch that they constructed with a large banner declaring, welcome Sir Hercules Robinson to Hill End by the prospectors of Hawkins Hill. And the the incongruous elements to the photograph, The, the street itself is rough, it's sand and gravel, the sign and the ceremonial arch looks a little handmade. The miners themselves are there dressed in their Sunday best, several of them with um, fob watches in their pockets, you can see the chains, and with top hats, women in their best frocks with umbrellas open to protect their complexions from the hot summer sun. Um, Or another wonderful photograph shows the Sons of Temperance and the Band of Hope parading along Clark Street in Mm. 1872 on the way to the opening ceremony of the laying of the foundation stone for the new public school.
1: Temperance was big, actually, wasn't it? It wasn't an all boozing all partying
2: it's one of the ironies of hill ends and any gold rush town is that on the one hand you've got these stereotypes of you know boomtown frenzy Uh, Robert Hughes developed an image of Hill End as, and I'm quoting him, a boom town with 50,000 wenching, digging, boozing and fortune-hunting inhabitants. A whole set of of, of spurious clichés. 50,000, make it 1,000 perhaps. One of the core elements, I suppose, of the hidden history of Hill End is just how orderly and respectable a place it was. Uh, The Sons of Temperance and the Band of Hope uh, parading down the main street. Still more interesting are the huge number of photographs, many of which have not hitherto been shown, of miners' families posed in front of their cottages. And many of these photographs are amazingly arresting because the miners' cottage is a very basic affair. They're slab timber huts with a couple of rooms and a primitive roof, mostly of sheets of eucalyptus bark held down by logs and stones. But with the family posed outside, dressed up in their Sunday best, and very often standing in the middle of a, of an amazingly complex ornamental garden, with flower beds, with hedges, carefully arranged in circles and geometric patterns, surrounding the, the homestead. And then beyond the ornamental garden, there is a functional garden of uh, fruit trees and vegetables.
1: A couple of Merlin's portraits hang on the wall of the perfectly restored home of the Cromann and Ackerman families. They were Germans who had intermarried and come out to Australia to help establish the wine industry. Cromann and Ackermann's mine was known as a jeweller's shop, and produced the gold they said was the size of apple dumplings. Now Lorraine Miller, née Ackerman had long been going to Hill End for family holidays before she discovered her ancestry had put its roots down in the very same spot back in the 1860s. Now she shows people round her immaculately renovated cottage, up the track known as Germantown Lane. Oh, oh look at this. Tell me what we're
6: seeing here. Well it's the parlour, the central room of a, a rectangular building that's built of mud and wattle slats with a, a skin coating on top of that of sand and lime and then we have a, a lime wash coating over that. It has a gable ceiling, wide pine timber painted with lime wash. And I said, that's just a mixture of lime and water, uh, what they used back then.
1: And you've got, you've furnished this in... in... Period furniture,
6: as it would have been back then when Croman first uh, uh, constructed the building.
1: So the histories of the Croman and the Ackerman families are very much intertwined, aren't they? Very much. um, They grew up in
6: the same village in, in Darmstadt in Germany. Uh, just out of Mainz, and uh, the whole families are, are quite connected. Your lineage comes through both, is it, that right? It comes through both because uh, Michael Ackerman married Anna-Marie Croman, who was a sister of Johann Croman. They then hopped on a ship and came out as grape growers. So they were there for 15 years before they joined Croman in Hill End.
1: Mm. What made them decide to leave behind their wine growing business, their vineyards and
7: coming uh, Well it
6: was uh, I, I think the gold, the lure of the gold and to join Croman here uh, they were very close He, uh, Croman uh, financed the sinking of the shaft on Hawkins Hill and he was one of the first to start reef mining in the hill and area Croman and Holtman mine adjoined one another but Croman's was known as the jeweller shop, it was certainly the richest mine. Croman actually um, took out in money value, over three hundred fifty thousand pounds in a three-year period. So that's quite a lot of money back in eighteen sixty-nine, between sixty-nine and seventy-one.
1: So what happened to Johann Kromann in the end?
6: Krumen, uh after having his children, he wanted to go for a trip back to Germany to see the grandparents. He's wife, Eva, was pregnant on the voyage and when she arrived there she was taken quite ill. So he bought an estate and he brought his sister-in-law in who was um, called Elizabeth Ackerman. She'd never married and I suppose he, being family, she would take care of Eva for him. But unfortunately she passed away two days after giving birth, Eva did about six months after Eva died the, the newborn girl child passed away but at that particular time Elizabeth Ackerman found herself pregnant with Croman's child so she'd managed to get herself positioned there looking after the children and of course she gave birth to a boy child and not long after that Johann's first son with Eva an only son an heir, of course, in those days. He mysteriously drowned in the pond at seven years of age. So Croman was devastated. Uh, we've done a lot of research. He never did marry Elizabeth Ackerman. And then, of course, Croman himself passed away. Elizabeth Ackerman, being a registered nurse, she signed his death certificate. Now, on that death certificate, she has actually written, the good-hearted mayor has died from breathing The fumes of fermenting must in his wine cellar. And of course, she was devastated that she didn't lay claim to the estate. It was all put into trust for his daughters. So, do you suspect
4: foul play?
6: Yes, I do. Elizabeth Ackerman was 32. She would have been a spinster for those days. Maybe she'd had this thing for Cromen all her life growing up with him and he's he's turned up with this young wife. Certainly uh, she was left with nothing. She had to scrape together some money to get on a ship to come to Australia to claim his uh, estate and his mine here in hellend But of course when she arrived here, Cromen had sent his sister a letter saying he'd give us the property and everything within to her, his sister, that he will never return without Eva.
1: What happened in the end to um, Michael and Anna-Marie? Yeah,
6: you know, where their wealth uh, gradually ran out because they didn't continue mining. Uh, the eldest son did take a 32 ounce cake of gold out of their mine, and uh, Dad has just said, take it to the family bank, ride to Bathurst on the horse. And But John Ackerman, his first born son, had not long been married and had a young child. So he actually rode to Sephala, opened up a bank account in his son's name. So we have son, fighting father and brothers in court. It went on for 15 years, the Supreme Court case. So much so that dad in the end went and blew the drives in of the mine and said no more gold. It's just parting the family.
1: You're listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National and to the story of gold mining town, Hill End. As you can tell, another significance of Hill End is its oral histories, handed down from one generation to the next. Here's Sheena Goodwin, whose great-great-grandfather first came to the region in 1851 and whose great-grandfather was a miner at Hill End.
4: Sitting
3: on a million. He
4: owned the Rose of Australia mine down at Hawkins Hill um, which he sold before they struck it rich unfortunately. And he also had the pack ponies that used to bring the quartz up from the bottom of the hill to the stamper batteries. What was his name? Uh, His name was Enoch Goodwin. Then my grandfather who was also called Enoch, he was an alluvial miner all his life and my father was an underground miner till he was about 30 when he went to World War Two and after that time he had a couple of projects. He had a sluicing mine down at Golden Gully but he never again earned his living as a gold miner. Granddad was really addicted. Gold mining is really a gambling sort of addiction and Granddad would have a fantastic uh, project thinking he was going to make it rich. He wouldn't the next day, he would get up onto a new project and he'd just be as, just as optimistic. He he was so positive about everything.
2: One of the things I feel particularly passionate about in discussing Hill End or other poor man's diggings is that the diggings survived because the poor man did not exist in isolation. Gold mining history tends to to treat gold mining as, as a sort of macho activity which was exclusively the preserve of blokes with sleeves rolled up and a pick over their arms. But gold mining communities formed and achieved an early degree of permanence because mining families were, from very early on, part and parcel of mining, everyday mining life.
4: Because this was a gold mining town, the miners are always remembered. But the women must have had it really, really hard. They came out, first living in Calico tents, Wattle Dub huts with bark roofs and dirt floors. They generally had very large families, but the infant mortality rate was very high. Like in 1872, 127 people died of typhoid. And they had to just deal with that in really shocking domestic situation, broken heart from the death of their children. It's incredibly cold in Hillen. We get all our rain in winter, so as far as climate goes, it must have been very, very hard to bear. Plus there was this constant stress, or there must have been, if their husband or father were injured or killed, then that family just had absolutely nothing. We have a pioneer gallery here in the Royal Hall, just you know, photographs. And the women always look so sad and so cranky and yet they're probably very young. But um, the stress of their life here must have been very, very hard on them. Plus, with 28 hotels, you know, there was obviously a lot of drinking going on as well. So you can imagine there would have been a lot of social problems too. One of the really interesting women here was Harriet Beard. Her husband owned a hotel and he was quite apparently a violent man and heavy drinker. Anyway, so she took over the business. And she just went from strength to strength and had hotels down at Tamburua, was part owner of the Beard and Carroll Mine down at Hawkins Hill, which was a very, very rich mine. She was also really well known in being kind and generous to miners and their families who were going through hard times. And apparently when she left, she just destroyed her ledger where people owed her money and she must have been quite tough because that gold rush community would have been pretty difficult to deal with but she went very well.
0: Dear sir, I was down your road last week and I seen a hell of a lot of rabbits on them mine tailings behind your house and no work going on to keep them down. The neighbours tell me you was down in the pub and that you was drunk for four days last Christmas and you haven't done a damn thing about them rabbits since last time I stirred you up. They tell me you were saving them up so as to have a few bobs to go to the show and probably get drunk again for another four days. Now, therefore, take notice that me, being an inspector under the said act, here to require you to forthwith and commence rabbit destruction work immediately, in default of which you'll do jail, which will probably be a bloody good thing as far as you're concerned. This is the last bloody warning you're getting, yours, etc.
7: There's one really lovely story that Vin Sutter shared with me, and which was then um, confirmed when I spoke to some of these miners about um, rabbiting when the rabbit plague was at its height. And Vin had a tiger moth. He set up an aerial rabbit destruction company called Hit Them Ard, which was aerial rabbit destruction. And he would poison these carrots and thistles and put them into the back of the tiger moth and fly all around the valley and throw out the, the bait. Now, he thought that was going to be a very good way to introduce a new business to his property. However, the miners who had these patches of land worked out amongst themselves. So someone would have Sutter's property and someone else might have Reed's property and someone might have the granites across from the on the other side of the river. They had these invisible maps and that was their rabbiting territory. So one day, Vin comes across in his tiger moth and he drops out the thistles and carrots and the miners start shooting at him. <laughs> and the miners <laughs> hunted him away because by the time they got to get to the rabbit skins. The rabbits had decomposed, so the skins were worthless. So then Vin negotiated with the miners about when he would go out and poison and let them know ahead of time, so they could then get in and skin the rabbits and sell the skins.
1: Marge Pryor, writer and oral historian, who spoke to a number of Hill End miners in the early 1980s about how they survived when things were grim down in the mines.
2: Increasingly small scale mining and autonomous mining becomes absorbed by miners working as wage workers for the large mining companies and as that occurs I think it's possible to trace an increasing degree of tension and antagonism between miners and managers. Tensions between or simmering resentments between miners and mine bosses flared in 1916 when there was a a comprehensive walkout by the miners which was broken by the companies but which which left mining families uh, poverty stricken but which left the companies themselves exhausted and it's not surprising that the third mining boom at, at Hill End in fact petered out shortly after that strike.
7: The strike is based on a mining community that became very militant over the years. They were um, labour voters, they were anti-conscripts, they challenged the conservative thinking in their area and they were the community that made up the village of Helend.
1: And who were they striking
7: against? They were workers from the Amalgamated and Reward Mines, so they were striking against um, those companies. Conditions were shocking. There was a photo of a group of miners outside the amalgamated mine and two-thirds of those men died of silicosis and they died between the ages of 30 and 50. The conditions were shocking because there was no ventilation and the company would tell the men to use water to keep the dust down. So if you could imagine working in muddy slippery conditions underground as the only means of trying to contain dust. The men soon stopped that and took their chances with the dust. So the strike lasted how long? The strike was for six months. And how did it end? Well, the men had to go back to work. They lost and they returned to work. It devastated the community. Um, it was a couple of years later when the mines did close down. Mm-hmm. And the, the um, some of the local historians are saying that was what brought the mines to an end. But from what I'm picking up from the miners, the companies were already thinking about closing before the strike occurred.
0: To imbibe a glass of liquor, it is not necessary that a man should be provided with more space than is absolutely essential for the purposes of squaring the elbow, throwing back his head and emptying the fiery compound down the throat. It may therefore be well-imagined that a grog shanty is merely large enough to contain a long box on blocks as a counter, a little standing room in front and sufficient room for the rum keg or brandy case behind.
1: The Royal Hotel, last remaining pub of who knows how many originally lined the streets of Hillend. Built in 1872, it was intended to have 30 bedrooms with 20 stables and commercial rooms for doing deals. In the end, it was a slightly more modest affair, but the classic two-storey, verandahed brick building was and still is a hub of Hill End. Gwen Eyre was the publican's daughter, indeed, granddaughter. Her grandfather, William Eyre, bought the Royal in 1891 with his wife, Sarah. Their son, Ozzie Eyre, took over, and then, though she'd been away for her school years, Gwen came back to run the pub after the Second World War. That sign
8: there on the front, that was done by Donald Friend. That was the lamp that was out the front. They had to keep a light going all night. It was the bane of my father's life, you know, the wind would blow it out.
1: Just in general, the hotel is a pretty significant part of Hill End, isn't it? Oh, well, it was the life
8: part. You know, everybody came down to the hotel. If the dancers were on, they served. You know, around the back and things. They used to hold meetings in the hall, and they'd all come back into the pub for a few bits.
1: What was it like as a as a young girl?
8: Well, I used to have my meals in the kitchen. I was very shy. You wouldn't think so, but it was. But after I came back after the war, it was different because there were a lot of people that I knew. There were young people, and we formed societies. that debating societies and we bought a picture show with a local boy and we used to run pictures once a week. That was great fun.
1: Where did you run the pictures? In
8: the hall next door. And you weren't allowed, women weren't allowed in those days to operate pictures, but I had learnt to do it because if anything went wrong, who did it? So MGM said, well if anyone asks, you don't know.
1: It's been hard, though, to do things like oh, washing for oh. people who stayed there. Well, uh, a, a
8: funny thing, I was only writing a thing for our little label paper. Somebody said to me, oh, I've got to do the washing. And I looked at her I said, you don't know what washing is. I said, I can remember when the, we had a washing woman. She came on a Monday. So on Sunday, you had to clean the copper out, fill it up, and you had to get sunlight soap and cut slivers and then you had to light the copper and she had a copper stick, you know, she used to take it out of the copper into a, we had concrete tubs in those days but they had big barrels I think and you'd put it in that and then you'd put in another one for the water then you'd have another one for the blue wood and then you had to take it up the clothes baskets and you put the line, had clothes props and unfortunately where the clothes line was was red soil and if by any chance the prop fell down, you know, it used to be, windy day used to be the bane of life. So washing day was a big, big thing but we we decided we'd have electricity. So father who I was not the slightest mechanic of mine. Somebody told him you could have wind-driven stuff, so we bought this windmill and we put it up and then we got batteries in, big glass things, you know. Well, we had it up for about three months and it never turned once. So then they put it up another 30 feet or something. We had to get one of the fellas, you know, and it, it wouldn't keep the place going. So, somebody, one of the locals, somebody's got bright ideas, but this fellow was very mechanically minded, and he decided that if we got an engine and we charge our batteries. So, we got this old Essex engine, he got it and set it up. Then the war came no petrol. So, we had to go into charcoal gas. Muggins was the one that had to learn how to use it, and I was allergic to charcoal gas. I knocked myself out. So father th- thought this was pretty silly and he went and saw the rationing board because we were going around the black market for petrol and they gave us a bit extra ration. So for years, we, if you wanted to use, you know, in equipment, we couldn't have a washing machine, mm. but if you wanted to use the iron
1: or something, you had to start up the machine. In 1947, Hillend received some rather unexpected guests. Artists Russell Drysdale and Donald Friend were searching for a new inspiration and they found it in a newspaper article about the old ghost towns of Hill End and Cephala.
5: At the time, Donald Friend was thinking of going to live in Tasmania. He changed his mind when he saw this story about Cephala and Hill End and it was then that he talked Drysdale into running in his, uh, his newly purchased Riley Tourer. And it was, again, this question of petrol. How do You got, had to, You could get out there, but you had to get back. So they, they, they were sure of that, and they made the journey.
1: When they came to Hill End, well, what made them say, OK, this is the place?
5: Interesting, yes. Well, you've got to realise it was the middle of winter. There was this rather sense of abandonment, I think, which, which overpowered uh, both men when they came up through the avenue, through the deciduous avenue, and... I think what they were particularly moved by was this complete ensemble of landscape and buildings and people on a scale that they really had no idea existed you know, in the hills beyond Bathurst. And it was this sense of the possibilities inherent in this landscape, the things they were interested in, reflected the Australian experience. They were also aware of the, the marvellous vernacular buildings, structures and gardens. Contrasted with the erosive ruins, and it was this contrast in the landscape, almost a surreal element, if you like, that appealed to both men. And the fact is, and I think this is a very important fact, Hill End today would be of very little interest to in them. It's simply too green. What they saw, and I mean this, this is from evidence, of from, mainly from the photographs that Drysdale took, was a fairly desiccated landscape. You know, you didn't have the the infestation of blackberries, of pines, of uh, sefton bush, which has covered the red hills, the bare hills. All this has transformed the site.
1: When all these artists arrived, they started drawing the town and drawing people in their environment. Right. But how did people feel about having their place interpreted like that? It might. Mm.
8: that one of I don't know, it was Donald Friend's or it has got the cricketers.
1: Yes, Tristis.
8: Tristis. Well, that was a great argument about that because everyone claimed to be the cricketers, you know. Um, Two of them went in the ABC and announced who they were, the Herald or something. We all had great doubts, but, you know, we said, oh, who cares anyway? But, no, they, they um, they didn't. They weren't sort of interested, really.
1: No. Were they a bit? Were the artists a bit separate from the rest of the community? No, not really.
8: No, they just came into the town, and no, they, they sort of just took them. It, it was rather strange, you know, when you think about it. In but what they, way? Well, that they did accept them, so. But I think that they they weren't show off if you know what I mean. They just dressed normal sort of thing, and they. The only thing, Jean, had in, Jean and Jean Hayflick would go in the bar to have a beer. That was rather scandalous for them. Uh, I heard Donald tell me somebody pinched a bottle, a bottle but knowing Jean, she wouldn't be good as... <laughs> but, um, no, they didn't. And the locals didn't didn't mock them
1: by any... any they didn't find them, you know, well, Donald and um, Don Murray were gay, weren't they? Well, I don't know whether the locals
8: knew or not. I knew because Colin told me, he said, you're sitting on a dynamite up there. And I didn't know what gay was till I went into the army. The lesbians, I mean, you didn't know in my day. You know, it's a bit queer. But um, when Donald came back from Italy, he bought a fellow called uh, Artilio. Gee, he was a good-looking Italian. Artelio was about, I suppose, 20. Well, the girls went mad, you know, the Artilio, and was all, and, and uh, I thought, oh, we're going to have trouble here, but we never did.
1: We never did. Russell Drysdale's paintings, The Cricketer's, Portrait of Donald Friend and the Controversial Woman in a Landscape, were exhibited by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. The works drew the attention of other artists, like Jean Ballette and her partner Paul Hafliger, Margaret Ollie, Geoffrey Smart and David Strawn. There were articles in the Sydney Papers about Hill End. A wider audience became aware of it as both an artistic and a historically significant place.
5: They saw at Hill End a place where art and life could coalesce. A lot of the material that artists draw from comes directly from their life, directly from their surroundings. And and Hill End is one of those sites that offers marvellous panoramic vistas as well as intimate sites that have great poetic meaning that, that I think lasted for generations.
1: Hill End was declared a historic site in 1967. The declaration has helped keep the village alive as a tourist destination and place of historic interest but has also caused ructions in a 200-strong community. How to maintain the character of the place without freezing it in time has been the subject of an ongoing struggle, which is perhaps only today finding resolution. But that's another story for another time. In today's program, you heard the voices of Alan Main, Gavin Wilson, Gwen Eyre, Marge Pryor, Sheena Goodwin, Lorraine Miller and Brian Hodge. Readings were by Tony Barrell. Technical production today was by Angus Kingston and I'm Gretchen Miller. The executive producer of Hindsight is Michelle Rayner and I hope you can join us next week for another story of Australia's past.
3: Sitting on a million, sitting on every day.
4: This gold was just Can't so no money, impossibly rich but they thought it was going to keep going, you see. And so, like, Hillen would have just been an amazing town, but it didn't, it just ran out. Because it was so rich and that hysteria remained so clear in people's minds that they've held on to that as being the main thing that gives us identity. And in actual fact, it's more about people surviving here, but we still cling on to that sort of maybe 12 or 15 years that that's what we're all about. You know, we sort of can't get over it. But maybe we can't get over it because it really was fantastic. The fact that they found 370,000 ounces in a quarter mile area.